Hi, and welcome to the fourth episode of Trail Society. I'm Corinne Malcolm. I'm Keely Henninger. And I'm Hillary Allen, still recording from my van, but this time in Oregon. Yeah, and Keely is back home, and we're going to talk about the race that she was at the last time we recorded. I'm recording from a ADU in Bozeman, Montana, getting ready for a wedding that we'll talk about in a little bit. But Keely, you're home in Portland. Um, you were not home in Portland last time we chatted. Um, how did Lake Sonoma 50 go? Oh man, Sonoma was great. But before I dive into that, Hillary, why are you in Oregon and you didn't tell me? <laughs> I'm literally <laughs> on the most southern terminus. I'm just, you know, I'm trying to like, you know, be below the radar. I'm trying to figure out the most creative way to get to Corinne's wedding. And right now it's going north to Oregon because I had a of California. I'm sorry. <laughs> I needed a break. And so then north to Oregon and then I'm going to head, you know, east to Montana. So, okay. Sorry, I'm actually not going to make it to Portland, so that's why I didn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. I'll I'll let it slide this time, but just this once though, just yeah, this just once, Hilly. Once. Mm-hmm. Next time you have to come through. Um, but yeah, I am not in California anymore. I am in Oregon and Sonoma was awesome. It was the first time Sonoma was ran after the big fires they had in Healdsburg last year. So it was kind of like sentimental being back, but it was also really cool to see the community kind of come back together, be really excited about the race and also be really excited that about all the work they'd put through it because the trails were in phenomenal condition for how like big that fire was and how much destruction was there. So it was really impressive with how like well done the trails were. And the course was as unrelenting as ever. Um, it definitely was a little hotter than previous years. I stayed with a really lovely um, host family. And when I first got there, they were like, oh my goodness, we were so upset that we moved the race to September because we told Skip, it's always triple digits. We don't know how you're supposed to run in this. <laughs> but luckily it didn't hit triple digits. It was just in the mid nineties, which still felt way hotter than previous years. Um, pair that with the course being a little bit less shaded due to all the fires and everything. Um, definitely like resulted in a pretty hot um strenuous day, but overall it was so amazing. As always, the community there is, is like next to none. Um, and it's always fun to be at that race. So it was really great. And I'm happy to be home. And she, and she won what yeah. we're missing there. Hillary, like, wow, that was, so, was gonna... that was a weird way to say Hillary. Um, I had a dental procedure right before this. So bear with my, uh, my mouth movements on this, but Hillary was there to witness Keely's 50 mile endeavor. Um, Keely, our, Hillary, can you tell us how that all panned? Like, what what did you witness out there? Um, I think in one word, I could say greatness um, because it was, I mean, yeah, it wasn't, you know, triple digits, but it was like 98. Like, it was like, it was ridiculously hot. And so, I mean, this is just like a current theme that we're seeing. Um, I think it's, I mean, Lake Sonoma really is not a battle of like attrition, but it kind of is when you get it to the heat, but you still have to keep on moving super fast. I mean, I know Keely went through the halfway mark at 325. She had her eyes set and on um, and her legs set on, you know, coming as close to seven or breaking seven as possible. And I just think the conditions as far as heat, like didn't really um, play to that, but that's still, she ran a super smart race. And I mean, she, Keely was fourth overall. Um, Maria Mendoza won the the men's race in seven hours, 10 minutes, and Keely finished in seven hours, 40 minutes. Um, and I mean, I, I, it 
hot out there. Like I couldn't even imagine running that back stretch, like with no trees and like kind of all of that stuff. And so, um, it was really impressive and it was super awesome to, to witness that and to see her do that. And so, I mean, I think because of the conditions, the overall field, um, you know, it was definitely affected. There was, you know, a hundred finishers and 60 dropped. So that's a fair amount. And, um, and of the people that um, did not finish and then 38 men. Um, but the overall spread of those 100 finishers were 60 men and 40% women. Um, so, well, sorry, I say percent, it was 60 men and 40 women. So it was an even 60, 40 spread. Um, and so, I mean, this is kind of what, I mean, Corinne, I forget if it was you or Keely, but Corinne, I think you said a couple episodes back that these, um, you know, these smaller grassroots community driven events, it'll draw more women and I mean, Skip, the race director, he's, and Holly, his wife, like they, they operate this through Healdsburg Running Company and it's so welcoming. It's absolutely incredible. Um, and I mean, I know that there's even a couple people that weren't included in these finisher stats that decided to run the the race like early. I think the race started at 6.30 and um, they decided to start at like 4 a.m. or something just to beat the heat because they knew they were going to be slower. And so I just think it's a really awesome community event. And um yeah. So that just encourages more, I think, women and people to show up. But I think that was really cool to see how, how, um, strong the women's field was. I mean, I know, um, uh, Sarah coming, she finished second, well, she missed the last A station. So she had to, um, uh, she was bumped down to third and I'm blanking on the, the third place. What? Tina Randrup. She's a young yes. up and comer from Seattle. So yeah, from, from the Bay Area originally. She's got her, her folks live in the Bay Area. She's super fast. She's going to yes. be real one to, one to keep your eyes on for sure. Yeah. But for those who don't know about the Lake Cinema course, there's a the last aid station. It's an out and back to the aid station, and it'd be really easy, particularly in a quieter race like this, and maybe not as many people out on the course to miss that. But it's not an insignificant amount of time. Like it's it's a like it's a downhill out to the aid and then back uphill. So they did the right thing with bumping, bumping those spots around, but that, that had to be a bummer for her in second two missing, missing that. I actually, I, I had not heard that. So that's really interesting. Yeah. And then yeah, I so guess, instead of, instead of just like, you know, they, they did like kind of an appropriate time penalty, but it was really close. I think it was seven minutes between the second and third. And so that could easily be seven minutes. And especially if you need to put on, like get some ice, cause that's a really hot section, you know, yeah. you could add up minutes. So and it's an out and back. So you see each other too. Right. Like that's a big thing too, yeah. is that on these out and back courses, you know, you know where everyone is and this, this additional out and back late in the race is like, a, Oh, this person's only a couple minutes back for me or, Oh, I'm closing on this person. So that's, that could have been interesting if it actually panned out that way. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a bummer too, because, uh, I know that Sarah was like looking for that aid station, <laughs> just Aww. never found it. She was so tired and like needed her water. And so, yeah, to your point, it would have been really cool if if we could have seen that race unfold a little bit from there too, because who knows what would have happened. Yeah, and then one thing to to mention in these results um, is we've been talking a lot about, about percent back for the first place um, female in the event, and you know normally in most races, particularly marathon and under, it's about ten percent. We look at like world um, world record splits and so on. Um, Courtney was exceptional with an eight percent. Keely, what was your percent back from Mario Mendoza? Uh, it was like around six. Yeah. Six so, half. so really, really close a ways, a ways under that 10% back. So I think that was a really, to me, that was one of the coolest stats to come out of the race weekend was like, 
okay, women, 50 mile racing, like running hard, dealing with the conditions that everyone had to deal with. Like, what did that look like? So mm-hmm. the men's field was not, was not a slouchy men's field. Like Mario Mendoza is a fast runner. So I thought that was very, very cool. Major, major kudos to you. you. We, we also have a bunch of results that people sent in to us as well with some women just crushing it all over the place. Keely, um, can you st- like help us summarize those that came in? Sure. Yeah. So there was an FKT attempt in Canada on the Bruce trail and it's 900 kilometers long. Um, if you guys know anything more about it, let me know, but there was a woman named Karen Holland who completely smashed the old men's FKT by over four hours, which is awesome. And we'll link to that article in the show notes. If you guys want to read up on that. Um, we also got a call out towards UTHC, which is a, which is a race on the ultra trail world tour in Canada as well. Ultra trail Huracana, um, their mascot's a wolf, um, which is timely because my, the glass I'm drinking out of also is covered in wolves. Um, anyways, that's a side note. Um, there were 20 women finished in total. So the field, um, wasn't very large. So the percentage of women finishing was pretty low. However, there were two in the top five with the first place woman getting second overall, um, Jenny Quilty. And then Marianne Hogan, um, was second female and Katie Asmuth was third female. And they were all just kind of crushing into that top, those top spaces, which was really cool to see, especially in, you know, a high publicity race. Uh, the tour was definitely promoting that race pretty highly. Um, and then, uh, Grayson Murphy, who everyone knows from the track, she's also a phenomenal mountain runner. She's been taking a tour to Europe and she, and her most recent race was fifth overall in a 15 kilometer race, which is definitely defying our stat odds, um, with, with that short of a distance coming in that high on the podium is pretty incredible. So any other, obviously like really big women accomplishments or any sort of accomplishments in the sport, you just send our way and we'll make sure to touch on them in future episodes. But yeah, those were the big ones that we got notes on from this past weekend. One thing to know about that too. So ultra trail Huracana is there's always a high attrition there because it's late in the fall. It's oftentimes really wet. It's 125 kilometers, but it runs pretty slow um, as well. It doesn't have like it's got vert, but it's not, you know, it's, it's really technical though. It's very rooty and rocky and slick. Um, so that's interesting. And then you pair that against Grayson's like 15 or 16 K, which is also not like an uncompetitive race. It was a world mountain running, like it was a mountain, it was a world mountain running world cup. Um, I think it was a heavily a Spanish, uh, it's a, I think like that, that's the big draw is a bunch of like Spanish, um, mountain runners, um, who specialize in these short distance races, but to finish fifth overall in a race that is less than 20 kilometers is that's huge, particularly when it's not like this is more than a local race, right? Like it, it is a world cup level race. I don't, I don't know exactly what the normal turnout is for it, but that I thought was really, really cool to see. And I think she, she won by like 17 minutes too, or something, which is also just like insane. So bravo to all the women who crushed it this past week. Um, but yeah, slide into our DMS with more information as results come in, um, FKTs or otherwise super excited to hear more from y'all, but Um, our topic today is kind of timely. We're going to be talking about, um, work-life balance and partnerships and friendships in the sport. And to kick that off, um, I'm getting married this week on Saturday in like a couple of days. Um, and this topic came about because I don't know if I'm going to change my last name or not. And so we were thinking about gender norms 
And I grew up as just Corinne. I never identified as like Corinne Malcolm because I didn't grow up with like six other Corinne's. I was the only one. Um, so I've never been like, oh, I am Corinne Malcolm versus my partner. He's always been Steven Edinger. And he's always like, he's always like identified as that, like these two names. And he told me that he didn't like how Corinne Edinger sounded. And so he doesn't care what I do, but at the same time, it's, it's so it's this interesting conundrum, right? To be in this position where it's like, do I keep my own last name for, you know, because I'm an independent, I'm my own person. I have my own identity. Do I, do I change my last name so that our future family, you know, is a unit that we have this, like, you know, we're the Edingers together. Like, I don't know. And I like keep asking all of my friends what to do because I think it's like, there's this idea of like, oh, it's really feminist to like keep your own last name, but I, I'm at a loss as what to do. I don't think that we have to decide by Saturday, but the time is running out if I have to decide on Saturday. So, um, help, help me slide into my DMS. Let me know. What do you guys think? What should I do? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think this is a tough one, Corinne, because I guess when you're talking about these gender norms and like what we're used to seeing in traditional marriages is women changing their name to the men's like to me that what comes with that is like a change in responsibility. Now, obviously that's not necessary and that's not something that needs to happen, but like, do you feel like some of your hesitation towards changing your name is because you don't want to like change your role or come like become a different kind of role? Like, do you feel like that's hindering you? I don't think so. I think that it's like, I, I don't know. There's like the logistic loopholes more than the like, oh, my role as a person is going to change. We've had these conversations though. Like my, I feel very fortunate. My partner's like, I don't know. I feel like he's a really wonderful human being. Hence the reason I'm marrying him. But we've had to have these conversations about like child rearing, right? Like he is going into emergency medicine. I have this really flexible job where I I'm writing and I'm running and I'm coaching and I, you know, I don't have to be in an office, which affords us flexibility to do things on his schedule. Um, and all of a sudden when you factor kids into that, it's like, oh, like, is it still his schedule? Or like, what about on his day off? Does that still mean that he has to like pull his weight in the house type of thing? Because when we're talking about this more is that women, generally speaking, I can't remember the number of hours it is a week, but it's women on average, even I think in the most progressive of households, carry the burden of unpaid labor right? If it's, if it's cleaning, if it's meal prep, if it's grocery shopping, if it's errands, if it's child rearing, all these things, there's all this unpaid labor that even I think in the, the most even of situations, the most equal of situations falls predominantly on the female partner in, you know, in like in a, like a heteronormative relationship. And so it's, it is an interesting conundrum to like try to work through. I don't think my name thing is hung up on that so much, but like, we'll see it. And we're, what we're going to talk about, you know, now more than anything is like, we're all in relationships or at least the three of us are all in relationships. And, you know, we, we rely on this other person to help us out in sport and being three women in the sport. That's kind of, I feel like, you know, normally we serve a supporting role and in, in society in relationships. And all of a sudden we flipped, we flipped the script on all of our, on all of our significant others, making them show up. And I'm kind of interested in, in your, both your personal experiences with that as women out in the world, racing, um, and having this like other, the significant other that is, or isn't there to support you. What has that been like? And I know Keely, you've got some interesting, um, stories about traveling internationally with that. And I'm really curious to hear this story that came out of South Africa. Yeah. So in 2018, I was fortunate enough to go to South Africa, to Cape town for ultra trail Cape town, which is like a hundred and a little over a hundred kilometers 
through the beautiful trails around Cape Town. Um, however, um, it is still like pretty behind, I guess, in, in relation to the United States of America and in how they view women and their role in the society. Um, and so we were driving out to a, um, like a safari and I was with my current boyfriend at the time. And the, the bus driver was asking like everyone what they were doing there. And, and I said something along the lines of like, oh yeah, like I'm here for a race and he's here to support me. And the South African driver was kind of like, sorry, um, he's to support you. And I was like, yeah. And, and he just kept asking the same question. And finally he announced to the whole, like the whole um, safari that listen up, this man here is here to support this female. <laughs> and he was so shocked that he, he brought it up like three or four more times along the drive. And, and it was really just shocking to me, but also like really, really good for me to experience that, that we are pretty lucky to have this role reversal without like actual, like conscious thought. I never thought consciously that we were reversing these roles. It was really just, this was my thing and he's there to support me. And I would do the same for him. But I guess like that's not the commonplace for every area of the world. And so it was really good to have my eyes open to that. Um, yeah, it was, it was pretty crazy. Yeah. Hillary, do you have any personal experiences with, with that either in the U.S. or or internationally or just like what, you know, like the expectations that even your community puts on you? Yeah. And so this is an interesting topic because I think it does, it does depend on the partner, right? I think, um, and it was actually really cool now to see, um, JT Keeley's current partner support her at Lake Sonoma. And obviously I didn't see it in Western personally, but I know that he was there and like what it really means to like be a supportive partner and regardless of gender or whether it's like the woman is elite and the man is not elite in this certain, um, you know, space. Um, but I just think it's actually really special there too, because it is kind of a, it is a role reversal, um, just, you know, historically speaking. Um, and so, I mean, I have similar, similar experiences, maybe mine, uh, not as positive as Keely's current relationship. <laughs> um, but I mean, I think it can be hard. It's something that I've talked numerous times with uh, to Corinne about um, like struggling with finding this partner. I mean, I do remember um, a partner that I had and we we couldn't find that balance. And it was something that ultimately kind of like put a rift um, between us. Um, you know, I still think it can, it can matter on confidence and having a woman that is is strong and capable in a certain thing, especially athletically, that can kind of form a little bit of a almost just barrier. Um, and in my example in particular, it was the fact that, of course, like this, this, this partner was very um, fast. And so he was faster than me, like, you know, what, maybe two hours and under, like he, he was definitely faster than me, but then anything over, you know, that where I spend, you know, it's like my sweet spot, like the longer we go, the better I am. <laughs> and um, that sweet spot, like he couldn't hang and it turned into like, you know, then ultimately instead of just admitting that it it was, you know, I was okay. And like letting me go, it became kind of a, just this negative thing where it almost would start fights. And so I think there's, there's, you know, obviously it depends on the partner and if they can kind of take more of a supportive role, but I think men in general are used to being, I mean, so, so much almost, you know, stronger, more capable. And this was also something that I, like, I didn't appreciate too, is like, he'd spend far less time training 
and still be able to go really fast and then, you know, beat me on a, like a workout. And then I was like, all right, cool. You want to come with me on my long run? (laughs) And, you know, then he wouldn't be able to hang. And it was something that I almost got, you know, it became this, this almost competitive thing. And, um, I've heard, uh, you know, David and Megan Roche talk like they're, um, you know, they're, they're a couple where they're both, you know, respectively, um, elite runners. And, um, you know, when they run together and they train together, David has to approach his training differently. Like he, I remember him saying to me, like, he lets Megan lead and she sets the pace. And so if it's her easy run, like he's kind of going along with, with the, for, for the ride, so to speak. Um, but then to kind of, um, you know, conversely, um, just this morning I had a workout to do and, I, I was joined by my partner and he, you know, he was just like, he comes from more of a cycling background and, you know, he, he, which just was like, yeah, you do your thing. Like you go off, like go rage. Like I had to do these efforts. We we're kind of doing a run together. And then once I had to do my intervals, I would go off and run. And he was like cheering me on. And then I would turn around, come back to the recovery, like, you know, do a little high five and then go do my little, you know, my, my effort again. And he was very supportive. And we were talking about on the way back, he's like, yeah, I've had to do this. And he's like, this is the first time this has ever happened to me. Normally I do this to other people, you know, like friends, like where, you know, the, uh, I'm like, oh, okay. Like I got, got to go do an interval. So see you when I see you, see you later. And it was really refreshing to have, like, there was no ego. There was no kind of like, oh, I need to try to like, keep up with you. I like, I literally was honest with him and I was like, I don't want you doing these with me. <laughs> I want to do them by myself. Um, so I think it's so individual and it just depends. I think it's really like Corinne said, she's talked about this a lot with her partner and, you know, with Steven and now he's going to be, you know, he, he's been an, an amazing part of your life through your whole progression from, you know, a, an, you know, a professional skier by athlete, um, to professional runner. And, you know, there's a ton of ebbs and flows when it comes to that. And it can be, you know, and then Steven was, you know, two-time runner up to be on the Olympic team for mountain biking. And so, you know, Corinne's been there too. So I think it's a really interesting thing if like you're with, you know, high achieving individuals, especially in sport, it, you just have to approach it with open communication and like kind of no rules apply. <laughs> yeah. Ego. I think the ego thing was super important. Like it's not about you like that. And that goes both ways. Like I have been dropped by Steven on so many workouts or, or like even like my male teammates, um, when I did biathlon and I would get so upset and then I'd be like, Oh, they're kind of the best in the world. I should probably like chill out. Okay. Like my ego needed a break because my ego was upset by it. And it's like the ego goes both ways and the ego in relationships needs to be like discussed and checked at the door and know what the, what the purpose is of the run or the ride or whatever it is. And this goes beyond like elites. This is just like anyone out there training with your significant other, because that can be really frustrating, right? If particularly when there's like a speed mismatch. And so it's like, we have a, we have a communication where it's like, what is the point? What is the purpose of this? Like, are we doing this together? Like, is someone going to go, go Sandy? Like, is someone going to go really hard? Like when we're on the mountain bike, Steven knows that he's going to wait for me on the downhills. Like he'll like ride until like a good stopping spot and then wait for me because I'm a little bit slower. And then like, same with running, like I can drop him on the more technical downhills and then I wait for him. And so it's like, this balance, this balance point. And like, I think it's really great to be like, I love that Steven's not a runner. Like he's gotten really good at running, but it's not his sport. And so we get to share, we understand each other's passions. And actually the only 
the only argument we've ever had about sport was, and this is going to, I think, trend into kind of a continuing conversation about balancing sport with the rest of your life is that he really wanted to go downhill skiing or backcountry skiing. And I like was, I was in like training for, I don't know, probably an early season hundred K or something. And I was in the point of training where I really couldn't blow it off to go backcountry skiing that day. Like I really needed to go do this run. And he was like, well, I don't understand. It's not your job. And this, I think, I don't think I like had the contract I have at this point either. Like it wasn't, it wasn't, it was my job, but it wasn't my job type of thing. And he comes from professional cycling where it re- like he, like he was making really good money. It really was like, that was his full-time job. And so I was like, well, this is my job, like my coaching and my running and my writing, it is all one thing. So like, oh, I like, I think I gave him, I think I shot daggers out of my eyes when he said, why can't you come skiing with me? Running's not your job. So partners, egos checked, be supportive. But like I joke with athletes and we all, I think all three of us are coaching people right now. Keely, you're coaching some folks as well. I coach a couple. Yep. Yeah. So it's like, and those people are going to be in relationships oftentimes. And it's, I joke with my coaching clients. We have not had a divorce yet. That was because of running. Cause a lot of people come in both men and women and they say, Hey, I want to step up from the 50 mile distance to the hundred mile distance. And my, my significant other, my wife, my husband, my girlfriend, my boyfriend, um, they're concerned that I already trained this much and they're worried that I'm going to have to train this much, you know, more significantly more to meet this goal. And they're worried about that. And so I think it's important to recognize independent of the, the, the level of athlete you are elite, you know, front of the pack, mid pack, backpack, whatever, whoever you are in your relationship, that dynamic, like there is a balancing component to exercise with the rest of your life. And that also means a balance for your support system too. And so I'm wondering, do you guys have any advice for athletes, for either people who are, who are the supporting role in a relationship or the, the, you know, the, let's, let's say primary athlete, they're the person who's training for the race most recently, maybe like advice for them to balance to find balance in that? Cause that is really complicated. I think. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I'll just, I'll chime in too. Cause this is a conversation that I have a lot and actually one of the, my favorite, um, I shouldn't say this, but it's, it's, it's a very, it's a great, I shouldn't say favorite, but I'm really enjoying this dynamic of coaching. I'm coaching a married couple. And so it's, it's awesome. And so for, for, for what I say, and you know, like they live in, in um, North Carolina and one woman, she is, she's definitely more accomplished. And so, um, she has these very competitive goals and her wife also, you know, she tries to take a more supporting role, but she is still trying to run and work towards her own goals, which are very important to her. So it's really cool to have to, you know, we try to do workout days on the same day. They're not the same workout, but they can kind of do it together and be each other's support system. So I think for me, what's worked, um, is just communication, getting the other person involved, whether you're, I'm coaching them directly or not. Um, another one of my athletes who I coached, um, Um, previously, you know, I would get on these athlete calls and I would talk to his wife too. (laughs) And, you know, we, we just, we, she, she, she just join in or she would just be like, hi, Hillary. And then, you know, it's like, okay, so really tell me what's going on. How tired is he? Is this okay? And so just, you know, like really involving it's, it's, it's a team effort, right? You know, you're coaching these people. And um, I mean, even we're talking about training, you know, it's, it's a daily endeavor. It's a lifestyle. And so it's not just about the specific run. It's about everything else 
to, you know, get, get that run done. And so, yes, it involves significant others. Absolutely. But it's also talking to the people that you're coaching or talking to the people that, you know, your significant other or your friends and, you know, there's all these moving pieces. And if, if it's not the partner themselves, it's, you know, considering family time, you know, all of these other things that you have to consider. It's like literally, you know, typically speaking, my long runs would be on the weekends, even though I have like a very flexible schedule, but sometimes people, they can't do that because, their dads or moms and they, they want to have a family day. And so it's, and again, like Corinne said, you know, training time is away from them. And then also you want to sleep. So you can't like, you know, do these runs at four in the morning every day. It's just not sustainable. Um, or to appease a partner, right. If you want to, you know, do things with them. And I was getting into this trap too, of like doing my workout and then wanting to do something active with my partner and then ending up doing, you know, two days. And then I was just freaking exhausted. And then no wonder we'd fight because I was just tired and hungry all the time. <laughs> yeah. Keely, have you, I know you, I know JT is not, not really a runner. He's, he's an avid, an avid mountain biker and cyclist. And so I know that you have through injury have kind of picked up biking more. All three of us through injury have picked up biking more. Yay. It's going to become a biking podcast. Um, I know that you picked up the bike and like I said, like I ski with Steven, I climb with Steven. How has that been an addition to your training? Right. Cause that, that's got to have a balance point there to be, make sure that you have that time. Like how do you find the balance of enjoying and wanting to have that time with him that's active at the same time, like balancing that with your training Cause I think that, that, that is, that goes, that could speak to everyone who's trying to balance those two things. Totally. Yeah. Because obviously to Hillary's point, like I could dig myself into a hole trying to prioritize that every day. Um, I think the good thing that, that, that I've been trying to articulate to some of the ladies that I work with, as well as for my own personal life is that it's like, they need to be viewed as two separate things. My training is one thing. And then when I'm not in my training, I turn my brain off from my training and I don't let that absorb all my thoughts because I find that in the past, I just wasn't present. And I think that just puts a really big toll on the relationship. And so then if, if say I do my training for the day, that takes up two or three hours, I turn my brain off from my training. So it's not absorbing my thoughts. Then it's like, we have valuable time together, or we can go spend time on the mountain bike, but neither of those things have pressure behind them. It's never like a, Oh, I finished my training because we must go do this. We try to like use mountain biking as like a way to fuel both of our like senses of adventure. And so if there's one day that just like gets out of control where we're like doing house projects or sitting in traffic and we don't have time to get out and mountain bike, like we don't beat ourselves up about it. Um, we view it as something that's just like way more fun and something that that is like extra bonus on top of like the other time we get to spend together. And I just think like, that's, that's, what's been really advantageous with this is that it's like, I can't put pressure on all of these things, right? Like running is going to be a higher priority. I'm going to get it done. That's my running tie a bow on it, put it aside for the day and then go about the rest of the day. Um, trying to like, not have all those like emotions around the running and just have, have fun and, and be present. Yeah. I think that's, I like that. And I know you're a, you're a morning, a morning runner. And I think, you know, one, it lets you get it done before the day, but I know for all the athletes that I work with who are parents who have kids as well, if they don't get out in the morning, the likelihood of the run happening goes way, way down because all of a sudden you're trying to get out after work and like, Oh, trying to even double after work can be hard. So trying to get out for your primary run or do a workout after work is darn near impossible. I know people who do it for sure, but it's one of those things where it's like, okay, 
you go and do this thing, you put a bow on it, it's done. And I think that's what my parents, like the parents I work with have showed me is that it's like getting their run done makes them a better parent. It makes them more present for their partner. It makes them a better employee or boss or whatever it is that they do during the day. And so it's one of those things where it's like, yes, your training is going to be inherently selfish. So egos aside, open communication with your coach and with your significant, whoever your support system is, be it kids, be it pets, be it significant others, like open communication with those people is going to be huge. And then like trying to figure out how you do that thing, you put it aside so that you can be present for all the other things that require your energy and your focus and your love the rest of the day. And I think that that goes, you know, we're all just going to have to get better at that as we, as our families change and grow and develop over the, you know, the coming decade. Um, because I feel like I'm learning from my athletes and from the women and men that I look up to in this sport who are rocking it with a kid or two kids or three kids and dogs and all this kind of stuff. Like, uh, it makes me feel like it is sustainable and possible, but I know that they are time management wizards. Is there anything else negatives, positives, of like, you know, being the supporter versus, you know, like how do you fit into both those roles that we haven't talked about that we should address as far as like qualities um, that can be shared or not shared? Hillary, what do you got? Yeah, so I think this is interesting. It all goes off of preference. And of course, I am I am someone who learns by mistakes or learns the hard way. <laughs> so, um, you know, I figure out something that I need based on an experience that didn't kind of work out so well, right? And I think maybe, um, a lot of us are like that. That's how you, that's how you learn. But I think, um, I mean, all of these things is kind of into this, this bigger conversation about boundaries. I think this is really important kind of just like, okay, this is my time to do this. This is my time to do this. Like, so I think it's about perspective. I know personally, I, you know, I can be all in on one thing and very driven. And so, you know, if I put a lot of mental stress towards running or, you know, for instance, doing, doing a workout, like just this morning, um, it can be very stressful. And if the, my partner is adding to that stress, you know, if I'm worried about if he's going to like run faster than me or something like that, just cause you know, that happens if guys, you know, sometimes guys who come from max, he like comes from a uh, professional cycling background. So he's a very good athlete. And I'm just like, you know, what? I just don't even want you to come and do this. Like, I'm just going to do this by myself. Like I need this to be my thing. Um, so, but that's something that I know based off of past experiences. Like if you let kind of the competitiveness kind of get in, it's really nice that he's there to just balance and be like, literally, I think the favorite, this is his favorite thing to say is no stress. And I'm like, I can just be super stressed, <laughs> but you know, so like he can kind of put, put like, um, calm me down, like even me out. And, um, I think that's good. So, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be your partner. It can be your coach or your friends or just someone to kind of bounce off those, um, those ideas or those, you know, thoughts and feelings with, I mean, I have this conversation a lot of times with people that I coach because, you know, maybe their significant other isn't a runner or isn't an ultra runner. So they don't really get it. Um, but I think more often than not, it comes with it more um, more of the, these hardships with balancing partnerships and training come with two athletes who two ultra runners, right? Or two like endurance athletes. Um, but I think it just comes with knowing thyself and then being able to again, like Corinne mentioned, communicate and um, you know figure figure that out. Um, but for me, that's one of the main qualities that I that I can um, speak to is because. I'm definitely the intense one. <laughs> so I need someone else to kind of, to make me more even keeled. I think that is really nice to not have a partner for me. That's not into ultra running. Cause I have 
like two different audiences to run ideas off of. I have one that's kind of like a very unbiased non-runner mind like slate. And then I have like other people that are very invested in running and they'll give me the opinion in relation to running. Right. So for instance, like if I'm being like very stubborn about eating to my partner, who's not into ultra running, he's just kind of like, what are you doing? Just, just eat whatever. Right. And, and if you're around, like maybe people who are more into running, they're going to give you a more running biased opinion. Like, Oh yeah, maybe like you don't have to. Whereas like, it's kind of nice to have those balancing of opinions um, and so, yeah, I think having obviously some people in your life that are runners and those who are not, it's, it's kind of a nice balance. Yeah. I don't think you can expect, I mean, I think this was a, uh, I think it's, is it Esther Perel? She's like the, a relationship guru. Her, her talks are phenomenal. She's got Ted talks. They're great. We'll, we'll, maybe we'll link one of them in the show notes. She's really cool talking about relationships and current relationship dynamics in a modern society. And the pandemic heightened this, um, was that we expect our partner to be our everything, to be our romantic interest and our romantic significant other, to be our confidant, to be our best friend, to be our family, to be all of these things. And it's not fair to the other person that this person has to be everything to you. And so it became, and, and because we treat them like family and our best friend, we sometimes don't treat them well because we can treat family like garbage and they still have to love you because they're family. Versus if you, if you treated a best friend like that, which is how we try to, you know, maybe view those partnerships is that best friends don't stick around if you treat them like garbage. Right. So it's like, you got to figure out, are they family or are they, are they a best friend? And so Steven and I had to take that approach with running too. Like there are people that I talk to about running and it's not Steven because he could not listen to any more of it, which I think is totally fair. Hence the reason I talk to all of you now about running, but, um, he says, tell me if it's someone that we care about. If, if Keely or Hillary go do something really epic, I want to know, but I don't care about, you know, this professional runner who I know nothing about. Okay. Like, you know, focus on the people that are part of our lives. And so I think that balance is really important. It allows you to kind of separate, it, it allows running to not be all consuming. And I think that is very, very healthy. I think it can be a very slippery slope when it becomes all consuming in your personal life, in your relationships, um, in your family life right? Trying to find some, some balance there is really important. Um, and I think what we're going to dive into now, if we didn't miss anything is talking about, we had a lot of, uh, viewers, viewers, what listeners, whatever you are, um, to message in and essentially say like, Hey, what about, what about female friendship? What about jealousy amongst, uh, female, other female runners? What does that look like? And I know that we've all had our own personal experiences, with, you know, obviously I consider you both my female friends, um, and competitors and training partners and all those things, but that's a hard, that's a hard balancing act, you know, just akin to middle school girls being mean, like adult, adult women can be mean too. So I think Hillary, this was something that was, that was put into your inbox. And so I'm kind of curious if you want to want to get us started here a little bit on, on, you know, how do, how do we create like maybe healthy or good relationships with other women? Um, and what does that look like right now in our society and in our sport, as far as women supporting women type of thing? Right. And this is, this is a topic that I think, you know, it's ongoing. And so, um, first of all, I think it revolves a a lot around self-confidence, right? We're in the world of sport and, you know, 
I love it on the start line of a trail of a trail race where I can hug my competitors. It's like, you know, a family of sorts. And then I think I, I have this line in my book because it's literally what I think. Um, you know, I love them, but then as soon as that gun goes off, I literally say in my mind, all right, it's time to slay these bitches. You know, it's like, I have this, like this, this line, but you know, at the same time, then, you know, if I'm in a race of either of you and you beat me, like I'll hug you at the finish line, you know, I mean, it's, I think it's okay to have conflicting emotions to love someone and want to kick their ass at the same time, because I love you ladies, but if we're going to be racing together, sorry, I want to finish ahead of you both. (laughs) But, and I know that you feel the exact same way about me. And so I think that it, it's like, it don't, I think sometimes the pressure and maybe this is societal pressure, maybe I'll get like too deep, but this is just something that I've noticed. I think that societal pressure of women to be, you know, to be pretty and to be polite and to be, you know, not um, competitive or too confident. Like, what? no, you can be all of those things at once and you can still be fierce. And I think um, the more that we embrace those different sides of us, instead of being like almost fake, because I've encountered this a lot where women are like, oh, like this is like, welcome, you're so great. And then I hear, you know, people talking bad about you behind your back, right? You know, I think that there's 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 room for for all of these things to still train with strong female runners. I think that's important to have female friendships to talk about these things, whether they're older than you, but also even if they are your competitor, I think because, you know, you're, you're going to be like, you're experiencing the same thing. It's important to talk about it. Um, and so, and I think it was hard for me to navigate when I first came into the sport. I mean, I've definitely experienced this whole like mean girl. Um, if anyone hasn't watched that movie, just watch it, then you'll know what I mean. Um, but, uh, you know, just this whole thing about the mean girl, the fake thing about welcoming them, but really not, but really just trying to undercut them every chance you get. Um, and I think it's interesting because we talk about how there's, there's not as many females in the sport. Um, and I think some females like that because then they can be the center of attention. But I, I really believe that a rising tide raises all ships. And so the more supportive and inclusive that I can be for other women, even though that might cut down my spot at the podium one day, or even in the current race, that to me is bringing more people and growing my sport that I love so much. And this has taken me a while to get to. I think at first when I came into the sport, I was more about this thing is like, no, I need to, I need to be number one. I can't have other women who are close friends who I'm going to be the who are going to be my competitors because it's going to take things away from me. But I think the more that I realized that that was that, you know, we can sharpen each other's, you know, like, like knives, right? Like my, my, my coach says, you know, steel sharpens steel. And so we're, we're aiding one another. Um, the more I've adopted that mentality, um, it's this whole idea, I think in the culture now is women supporting other women. Um, and that's exactly what we're trying to do with this podcast. Um, I think that it makes the most strides and makes the most improvements. Um, but I think it's hard to get there and it has to start individually because I think we can get carried away in the, in the uber competitiveness of it. And especially when women are a lesser percent of the field in general. Um, so I I think I'm just gonna, sorry, I'm just gonna jump in here. I think what's really interesting about this though, too, is that although, and we're seeing this in our sport right now is that, and so in society right now, we both want women to be 
not to be bossy, to be, to be polite, to be approachable and dignified and all these things. But we also want, we also uh, applaud women for doing things that are traditionally masculine, even if it's like, um, I was listening to a podcast the other day and it's like, oh, you know, girls who gravitate towards physics or gravitate, you know, gravitate towards, a, you know, a, a field that's not traditionally female. Like we might applaud that more. So society is kind of trying to steer the ship a little bit right now. And so I like most recently in our sport, we see someone like Sabrina Stanley get like pooped all over. Can we say shit? I'm going to say shit, shit all over because she vocalizes what she wants. And the truth is, is that most women standing on the starting line, they have those same internal thoughts, but Sabrina says them in interviews. And I like, I applaud her for that because I think that that is important that we're seeing that in our sport. And it's like, there's, there's a side conversation of, do we frown upon this in women so much? Because there is a subset of our sport that also thinks that sport is only about community and being out on the trail adventure together, as opposed to competition, you know, like there's, as opposed to like, uh, professionalism in the sport and competition in the sport. And this is kind of a side topic, but I think that there's a lot of interrelation here or like intersectionalism here between like what society wants, what trail culture wants, what women want. And I think it gets like jumbled all together and that it's hard for women to maybe, I don't know, like find their voice in the sport or how they're going to portray themselves in the sport. And that can come across as like inauthentic, right? Because, you know, they see what Sabrina does and, and she gets, she gets shit all over for it. And so it's, I think it's, it's, it's hard to navigate that. And I'm wondering, you know, like, why is it that, I mean, we can go back to middle school, right? Where like girls are not always nice to one another and, and maybe that's competition and whatnot. And, but I'm just curious is like, do either one of you, Keely, maybe you've got some ideas on this as, as to like, why do we see these things present themselves within, within sport in general, within women's sport in general? Is there a reason why, you know, uh, it can be hard sometimes to be best friends with your competition? I mean, I think so. I mean, I think one of the biggest things that I, I realized a while ago was talking with Megan Hicks of Iron Farr. She was saying how up until recently, uh, all of the women they would interview before a really big race would say like, oh, I just want to give it my all out there, like really excited to be here. And then and no one would come out and say, yeah, I'm, I'm fit right now. I'm going to go try to win. Right. And, and all the men would, every single man they interviewed would say, I'm going to try to win, you know, all of these things. And I think that's because we are kind of living this, this like double life, right? There's a part of us that wants to be this really confident athlete. And there's a part of us that's, it's not quite used to that. And, and society shuns us for it. Um, and so I think we're lucky that, or I guess not lucky, but we obviously are surrounded by a lot of women who exude this confidence. And I think it's becoming more commonplace for women to talk to this confidence. However, there's a lot of women in this sport and in the world who are just not as confident as a lot of the people that we associate with on the regular and who we think of when we're talking about this kind of context. And I think when, when you're a little less confident, like this can lead to a lot of like intimidation from those who are more confident. Right. And, and in this sport where gratification is pretty scarce, um, and you know, nobody actually really cares that much about trail running yet, as it's still a growing sport, I think this can kind of this can manifest as this really low level tension among a lot of female competitors where there's some that are more confident than others, some that are less confident and this kind of like, just is this inner turmoil of women competing for these spots, um, which are very scarce in this sport. And so that's kind of my thought is that 
there's just like this tension right now, as there's this mix of a lot of different women competing for these smaller spots where they're, they're maybe just not, they're not being as supportive of one another as they can be. Yeah. And I think this kind of goes into this whole women supporting women and something we mentioned in the first episode too, about the presence of, you know, female coaches and women, you know, in, in coaching roles or supportive roles, um, you know, mentorship, female mentorship. I think this is one of the main ways to kind of grow the sport. And this, this happens, I know we've spoken a lot about, you know, from our perspectives, that's elite, but I think this goes to, 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 to anyone. And I think, you know, going back to Lake Sonoma, like a grassroots community event, you know, I think that encourages more women to join because yeah, they maybe not have, maybe not have the confidence, you know, to say, oh, I'm going to go out there and race it. But if you have other girlfriends doing it with you and, you know, it just, the, the pressure's off and it can just be more of this inclusive community thing about the experience rather than, you know, death or winning, you know, and, um, I think that that can be a little bit more accessible. And I think that's a good starting place too. And, um, and that's what I try to do as a coach, but, you know, also, um, in the community, in, in the run community as a whole. Um, and you know, my, my home base when I finally get there. Keely, I was wondering not to put you on the spot, but I was looking through our notes and I, I really, really appreciate the quote from Forbes on this, um, from the, why women don't always support other women article. And I'm, I'm wondering if you would feel comfortable just reading that entire quote for us. Cause I think it's really pertinent. Yeah, absolutely. So Corinne and I found a paper on Forbes about women not supporting other women. And this is typically, this is one addressing this issue in the workplace. Um, And the article cites, this role governs relationships, power, and self-esteem. For a healthy relationship to be possible between women, the self-esteem and power of one must be, in the eyes of each woman, similar in weight to the self-esteem and power of the other. In other words, these key elements must be kept dead even. And when this power balance gets disrupted, such as a woman rising in the status above other women, women may talk behind her back, ostracize her from the group or belittle her. These behaviors are to preserve the dead even power relationship that women have grown up with their entire lives. Of course, this is a subconscious process. Most women are not aware of the invisible rule and what drives their behavior, but it is a big reason why women sometimes do not support other women. And I think that's just like super, super relevant to kind of this whole discussion as it's it's going to just take a lot more time than we think to change this, this entire mindset for women in the sport. Yeah. Um, and it's going to take, I think, you know, we've talked a lot about having um, other, other people um, to kind of, I don't know, lead by example in a lot of ways, having mentors in the sport, having peer mentors in the sport, having, um, I don't know. So I, I consider like a peer mentor, someone that's like, you know, you or me, like you're my peer mentor, someone that I can turn to who's really in like a very similar position to me or Hillary. And then having a, a mentor of something that you're aspiring to. So someone who's a little bit more senior than you and that dynamic, that power dynamic that they mentioned is going to be a lot different. Um, but that's a person in the sport who you can kind of look to for kind of future steps to moving in this direction that you want to move in. Um, but I think it's that, that important important balance there of, I get it. I get the power balance thing. And I just, I wish that, I mean, we've got a long ways to go, I guess more than anything, but I, I'm a weirdo. So I, I can tell the story, um, while we wait for, for Hillary to reconnect. Um, one of my best friends in high school who I ski raced with, um, 
I'm kind of a weirdo where I'm like really self-competitive. I mean, I'm a very competitive person, but I find that I, I derive a lot of it internally. Like it's, it's me performing my best against myself. And I've always been able to, I've, I found that balance, even as a high school athlete, you know, trying to win state meets and that kind of stuff. And my best friend, um, very comparable, um, level athlete, um, very, you know, we were racing head to head. And when we got to the heat of the competition season for her, she couldn't be my friend then, which is always this interesting dynamic where it was like, I, it took me a while to, to understand why she couldn't be my friend then of it's like, Oh, okay. Like to her, she can't separate these things. She can't separate me as her competition and me as her friend. And that's, uh, you know, that is, that is what it is. But it, I think, I think that still is still reflected in our current race environment, our current trail environment where it's like easy to be friends, maybe in the training season. And it's harder to be friends. Maybe, um, when you're trying to get on the start line right next to each other. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then I think another thing is, is like the sport is still new. And so, you know, I know I entered it where I was seeking gratification from the sport. And so I think that even made it harder to befriend a lot of women, um, in the sport because like I wanted the gratification and I didn't want them to have it, but I've actually, obviously since then I've fostered so many amazing female relationships. And I don't think I get more excited for anything than seeing another female crush a race now, especially ones that are near and dear to my heart. Um, and I actually had a really cool chat with my friend, Rachel, the other day, um, kind of talking, we, we love this. Rachel, Rachel Drake. We, um, we love Rachel. And she actually had said something along the lines of like, I really want to be able to prioritize being a great friend as well as being a great athlete and a great partner and a great like employee at my, on my work. And it was kind of just this holistic chat about how, yes, we all have partners. We all have amazing female lady friends. We get to crush stuff with, we all have work. We all have other life stressors that come up and like, how can we balance all these things so that the, they all are happy and they're all fulfilling and that we actually can have a good balance between all of them. Because obviously that's like the hardest thing to do. It's like not, we don't all just have to prioritize our partners and our friends. We also have to prioritize our work and our life stress. And so, yeah, that kind of just like really gave me a good like time to think about all those things because it's all equally important. And so like, how do you feel about like your ability to kind of you know, not only be getting ready to get married to like your partner, um, and prioritizing friend time, but like, you're also planning a wedding and you're coaching and you're writing and we're doing this show. And like, how are you prioritizing all of that? So I feel like it's a Brad Stuhlberg thing maybe a Steve Magnus thing about you can't, they, they talk a lot about, Oh, like balance is good. Or like they, they said that society talks about balance being good. And they're like, no, sometimes your life is going to be super, super lopsided. And that's, that's okay. Like sometimes you have to go all in on something. And so it's like right now, like my training is not my priority. Like the week I was in Chamonix, my training was not the priority. I was there for work was the priority work and seeing some people were the priority this week. It's, it's the wedding is the priority. And I'm in, I'm in a fortunate position where I don't have a race around the corner. And that's, that's like, it allows me, but I also chose to not have a race around the corner right? I looked at my schedule. I looked at my year and I said, Hey, this is when this is going to happen. I need, I know that work is going to be busy. I know that I'm going to deprioritize running for a hot second and prioritize my relationship and my job. At the same time, I'm sending out an email to all my athletes 
um, tomorrow being like, Hey, I'm for those of you who don't know, like I'm getting married this weekend. So I will not be checking my emails until next week. Like peace out. Um, because it's like, and, and they, you know, and they are understanding of that, of me taking that time. So I do think it's, it's, it's a fallacy to think that you have to have perfect balance in every single aspect of your life at every single moment. And we found that even like with the, our relationship, like there are times where I'm, I'm the rock and like, I'm, I'm the support for Steven. And there's sometimes where Steven has to be the rock, like, or the lifeboat or whatever, like where it's like, we move to a new place and Steven has community and I don't yet or something. It's like, okay, I'm going to rely on you a lot. I'm going to lean on to you more than I normally do because like we're in this situation. So I think that same sort of thing goes for running time, family time, relationship time, friend time, work time. Those things are all important. And it's important that we try to juggle those things, but there's going to be phases of the year where like something's got to give. So for my athletes, it's like, I look at race time and I look at their peak, their peak volume weeks. And I say, Hey, I, I am pretty confident that this is when this week is going to hit, you know, looking at the long range plan, you know, that could change with, with sickness or injury or whatnot, but though that's the week where I need you to have your support system on board with you being a little less present with you, maybe not being the most, like the best worker with you, maybe not getting as much family time that week, because that is the week that is really important. Or these are the two weeks that are really important. And I think as long as you go into it with a, with a game plan and you realize that it's going to get skewed for that week or that day or whatever it is, I think that is how you maintain balance in the big picture, like micro micro cycle. There's no balance macro cycle. There's some balance. Um, Hillary, I don't know if you have, I mean, obviously you're on a book tour right now. You're trying to come to my wedding. You're training, uh, because you had to drop out of UTMB and you've got another race on your calendar because you're a badass and you've got to go do that. So it's like, got a race on your calendar currently on an un, unconventional book tour in a van, um, trying to come to my wedding cause you're my support system. That's a lot to balance. And you're, you know, so you're training too, and you've got athletes and other, other shit to do. So like, how are you currently finding some semblance of balance? You had a post on Instagram about this other day, actually, that I think is, is kind of pertinent. I am balancing a lot of things. Um, I mean, the great thing about uh, having another race on the schedule um, is that I have another race on the schedule, but it's also, I know I have to balance all of these things and it can seem like a moving target. Um, and I know all of you are not, you know, you're in the same boat as me. You're doing the same exact thing. Um, and so for me, I try to think about it as a matter of perspective. So I try to shift it. And this is actually something I heard from uh, Mario Frioli on one of his podcasts. Um, but it's about viewing something as a priority versus a sacrifice. And so, you know, if this week it's a really important week of training, well, then I'm going to prioritize those more. And some of the things kind of take a back seat um, versus, you know, if this week I have a lot of work meetings to do and I'm, you know, more recovering from a race or in a recovery week or just a lower volume week of training, you know, it kind of things can kind of ebb and flow in that way. Um, but for me, it also helps it keep in perspective, like why I like to do these things. Why is something a priority? And for me, it can, especially for running, not only does it revolve around, you know, racing, but it's also something that brings a lot of joy um, or, you know, a break from work and mental health and these kinds of things. Um, but yeah, it can be a lot to manage. And also something I love about coaching um, and, you know, doing podcasts like these, it's um, and 
that's why I love it so much is because I feel like it's a way to kind of give back to the community and it feeds my soul in um, a really good way. And so, yeah, it's really easy to prioritize time to do, um, to do, to do this and to, you know, engage with the runners that I coach and, you know, really put my all into that as well. Um, but yeah, I think it's just a balancing act, but also it's all worth it. So one thing I think we can add here too, is kind of tying in the, that, so balance is hard, but I think the pandemic is, um, was a really interesting learning curve. I know I had a bunch of athletes who we, we took a different tact at the pandemic. And what I mean by that is that we, um, we, instead of them training more because they weren't commuting, they slept more and they had more family time. They didn't train more. They just like did the other things better. And I actually think Keely, you did something really similar to that, where I feel like you addressed the pandemic and your work life balance differently. Um, and a lot, like use the flexibility you were given to kind of, you took advantage of it. So I'm really curious to know how the pandemic shifted your ability to balance those things. If it gave you more flexibility or less flexibility, what did that look like? Cause I feel like it did. Cause of the three of us, you have an office job. Like you have to report somewhere to do, to do work. So what, what did the pandemic do for you as far as like finding that balance? Yeah, I think that I got pretty lucky with um, how my workplace um, responded to the pandemic. So I was able to work remotely for the first time in my whole, you know, career. Um, and that really gave me a lot more flexibility than I was used to. And so I think at first that manifested in a very inefficient way. I was very confused as to what to do with all this time. But then I think um, I really got to the point where I was able to really juggle work, training, my, my partnerships and my friendships way easier because I no longer had to plan for commuting, for like experiments at different times of the day, I really got to set my own schedule. I could work, you know, in the early hours of the morning, if that suited me better or in the later hours of the evening. And then I could kind of prioritize all of that around my training. And so for me, um, the pandemic shift in my work really helped now, obviously, because I work in research, working with, with humans, uh, it's not going to be forever <laughs> because you can only get so much, uh, work from homework, uh, done when you actually need to conduct experiments for what you do. But I'd say it's really helped me um, figure out the balance. And I think some of these skills I'll be able to take into the future when we do require going back to the office. Um, and, and, and remember that we do have more time than we think if we are strategic with what we do with our times um, and just kind of eliminate some of that time that kind of gets built in as fluff where you can't really remember what you did during you know that said hour that, that went by. Um, so yeah, I think I've felt pretty grateful. Um, I'd actually found another article on Forbes. They were, they were killing it with articles for this, this, um, episode, obviously, where they were talking about how women might've become advantageous from this COVID shift in working because they were already kind of used to juggling a lot of different responsibilities around the house. However, now they didn't have to plan for commuting or, you know, getting changed to look really, really presentable at work and do all of these things on top of all of the housework. And so um, this article kind of talks to the women actually like finding a holy grail of working, which is pretty cool. Um, and I definitely can resonate with that. 
Yeah. I think that balance is that, that for a lot of women, it did create some balance and for people in general, it created balance, but at the same time too, there have been articles out there by the Washington post and the New York times, um, that have said, you know, when people return to the workforce, you know, this is, this was in part when we were looking at is childcare readily available is school happening, right? Like schooling and childcare all of a sudden fell on who it fell primarily on moms at home with these kids. And so it was like, yes, they don't have to do X, Y, or Z, but you know, fun, fun, new change. You also have to figure out how to get your kindergartner onto a zoom session for zoom art at 1 PM while you're also supposed to be on some other sort of call presenting, you know, for whatever you do the rest of your time. So it's like, yes, I do think that, I think women crushed the pandemic in part, in part, because we went into it with the ability to multitask, we are inherently, I think the better, the better sex at multitasking. Um, but I don't think, I think that the responsibility of like children being at home for those, for the parents during the pandemic, it fell on the women. And I think that that was a big, that was a burden. And I think less women, women will return to the workforce because of that, both positively and negatively. There are women who are going to love what they're trans and men who are going to love what they're transitioning into doing. But I do think that there was there was a, a detriment to to a lot of working moms in that sense as well, particularly when it came to having kids at home who who couldn't be unsupervised, right? High school kids, they can do whatever. Kindergartners, yeah, they they need help on Zoom, and your third grader can definitely help them. But it's still it's still a little bit trying. But I think this ties really well into like your pandemic experience, Keely. I think ties in really well to what we saw, what we witnessed at Western States for you personally, like you invested in that race. You said, Hey, I'm going to prioritize this thing. I'm going to use my PTO. I'm going to go get this training in. And the, and the Keely that we saw show up at Western States was super happy and super confident in her training. And I'm just wondering, I think this is going to kind of how we're, we'll sort of like start to close out the show is what, like, I think that was because of balance. So can you speak to that? Like what balance you found and how did that make you a a better, a better runner to get the best out of yourself? Yeah. I mean, I think in the beginning of the pandemic, I didn't have that balance. So I took all of my extra time and invested it in running in a very like negative way. And then I think over time, as you realize you have this extra time to invest in, in things, you realize that you, you can invest it in like making your personal relationships better and making your, you a better friend and, and learning something new at work. Um, and that kind of all molds you into this human being that's like confident in themselves, regardless of running. And so I think ultimately, like I decided to invest a lot of time and training for Western States, but I also invested a lot of time in myself and becoming more confident and happy outside of running. And I think that that kind of translated to running um, and vice versa, right? As my running became better and less stressful, that also translated to having better like success in the day-to-day -day life. Because one of my dearest friends, Danielle Snyder, who's like a licensed clinical um, social worker, she works with like athletes from Olympics to trail running. She's She always says stress is stress is stress. And, and we can't forget that like running stress is similar to our bodies as life stress, right? And so... I think what I ended up doing was just trying to eliminate all of those stressors. And so by eliminating some of the stress I had tied up in my mind around running in my day-to-day -day life, freed up some space for new things and also ultimately reduced a lot of the stress I had on, on my body. And so, yeah, I think going into Western, it was probably the first training block where I was of the best mindset I've ever been. My training definitely was not ideal with my broken ankle and taking a ton of time off, but 
mindset is a lot in this sport. And so going in, I was confident in my mindset and in the training I did get. And so, yeah, it was, it was easy to be really excited for the race, um, regardless of things I could have been very stressed about. Yeah. You had that mental well to pull from, I think Dylan, uh, Bowman talked about this a lot. And Tim Tolson talks about this a lot about going, needing to go into the race, not with a physical well to draw from, but with a, a mental well to draw from because they're going to bury themselves out there. And so they need to have that reserve in mind. So I think, yeah, key, key takeaways from today is that check the ego, everyone, everyone's going to check the ego, open communication between all supporting members is incredibly crucial. And then yeah, stress is stress. And that balance is not always perfect. That the act of balance, sometimes imbalance, and that's totally okay. Because in the big picture, we find balance through that. So I think that we're running out of time. Hillary's got to got other things to do besides, and then start driving towards me. So I guess I'd like to figure out, feel like finish up with our society slam. So one of the big ones we want to touch on is that we actually um, were reached out to by one of the women who was greatly impacted by the, um, let's call it the controlled stop of TDS. Um, Tara, she was stuck behind the fall, but out of Borg St. Maurice. So she was up on a pretty exposed um, hillside, I would say. Um, and they were not required to carry a winter kit. So they used every piece of gear they had on them, which did include, include an emergency blanket. And they were left in this position of being unsure of if they were going to get to continue, then getting mixed messages that some people were allowed to continue, but they weren't going to be allowed to continue. And just like talking about how, you know, people are still going to be grappling with this, you know, from, from all sides, they're still grappling with the fact that someone passed away, that that, that is in, incredibly tragic, but also that their race that they had trained for that was their that thing that they had worked years to get into, to be a small percentage of those women who got to finish, to be, to, you know, be so subtly stopped and then turned around, I think was something that this, this listener was still very much working through. And we really appreciated that. We really appreciated hearing from people who were out there. She sent us photos of everyone in their, their space blankets up on the trail, looking very, very cold out into the early morning hours before they were allowed to, to walk back down. Um, so yeah, that was, that was really cool to hear. And we're very, you know, we're thinking about all the runners who, whose race, whose race day was ended. And also for the runner who, who lost um, his life again, because that I think is still really, I mean, it's been a year of tragedy in the ultra world. And I think that we're all still grappling with um, loss in, in a couple of different races at this point. You know, really touching on, um, you know, this runner, Tara, she's a good friend of mine, um, you know, that ha- she was there kind of, witnessing everything that happened in TDS and having to, um, you know, stop her race. I actually saw her after, um, after the race and was up at the Aguidimidi mid station and we kind of got to hug it out and, um, you know, talk about things. And it obviously really deeply affected her, not just of what happened, um, in the event itself, but also just, you know, her, her race, something that she really trained hard for. Um, but, uh, and then having to stop that. And uh, this is also something that I wanted to say from, you know, our previous episode, I had said that all of the races had required their, um, cold weather kit. And that was just an assumption on my part, since I assumed that TDS had the cold weather kit, um, mandated to them just because, you know, they had thunderstorms forecast 
lasted from 3 to 8 p.m. And Tara actually corrected me and said that they were not. You know, you get a little text update from the race organization, you know, the day before the race. And they actually did not require um, a cold weather kit. So this is also why, you know, she sent a photo of, you know, her and all the other runners on the side of a mountain in their emergency blankets. Um, and so... Yeah, that was um, that was really touching to hear from her. Um, but yeah, keep at it, um, sending us messages. Uh, I get a lot of you know encouragement and just engagement, and so you know keep showing us um, some love. Um, actually, someone who I did the Society Slam with uh, last week, she messaged me and said she listened to the episode and it was awesome to hear her to hear her um, you know comment to be be listened uh, be be listed. So uh, yeah, um, but that's it for me. Yeah. And then I had one, or I guess I've had a lot, but one that's really, really important to us is how we can kind of address female athletes and coaching female athletes and talking about a lot of topics with both male and female coaches with emphasis on male coaches so that they can, you know, really start to try and help female athletes around the world. So we're definitely going to address that in a future episode, um, get a little bit of a round table going there. Um, and so we're really excited for that and keep these, these messages coming. We love hearing from you. Um, and we hope that you guys can leave this episode with a little bit more insight into how to balance this crazy sport of ours. Cause we obviously understand that the training that goes into these races and the amount of time is vast. And so keep hanging in there and stay positive and keep that stress level low. And you'll continue to just be the best version of yourself out there on the trails. Yeah. A happy runner is a fast runner is a, is a happy, a happy home life as well. So slide into your DMS with feedback on this episode. We love to hear from you. It's really great insight into the community. What are you all thinking? What are you seeing out there? Um, both about this topic that we covered today and other topics that we're hoping to cover in the future. Um, we'll see you out there on the trails. Thank you so much for listening to trail society.